Hello and welcome to the Adventures of Paul Temple from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Isis Audiobooks presents an unabridged recording of Paul Temple and the Front Page Men, written by Francis Durbridge, read by Tom Crow. Chapter One Chief Inspector Charles Cavendish Mackenzie Reed Chief Inspector Charles Cavendish Mackenzie Reed would certainly have delighted the heart of that famous Hollywood producer who, in a moment of sheer inspiration, insisted that all Scotland Yard detectives should have genuine Scottish accents. Though Mac tried hard to conceal his dialect, he was never entirely successful. Unlike many of his fellow countrymen, he wanted to forget that he was once P.C. Reed from a tiny Scottish border town who had won his way further and further south by sheer pertinacity, climbing a rung and a promotion ladder with every move. It was his relentless perseverance which had brought him into the public eye as a man who had run down the Blade Kid, perpetrator of a long series of razor-slashing crimes in the Derby area. Reed worked on his pet principle that every criminal makes a slip at some time or other, and that it was merely a matter of waiting for it. In this particular case, he took the very obvious procedure of making a methodical daily round of all the shops that stocked cutthroat razors. His colleagues had thought it a great joke at the time, but Charles Cavendish Mackenzie Reed merely set his stubborn jaw and went on with his business. And then suddenly, on a peaceful morning towards the end of May, the Blade Kid did buy a new set of razors, and this dour, sandy-haired Scot came to town. He was not altogether happy at Scotland Yard, for there were far too many public school and university men at the yard for his liking. Their assured manners and open vows made him more conscious than ever of his homely Scottish accent, but he would never have dreamed of betraying this suggestion of an inferiority complex. Nevertheless, the Chief Commissioner had come to rely upon Mac particularly in cases which call for unfailing patience and ceaseless attention to detail. At this particular moment, however, Mac was none too pleased at the way the chief was treating him. Sir Graham Forbes had carelessly informed him that another of these ex-public schoolboys was to join him on his latest case. Max chose to construe this as a reflection on his capabilities, 
but he had not dared to say so. Inspector Hunter stood before him now in his little private office, which was kept in scrupulous order. Hunter was a personable young man in the middle twenties, who had a wide and peculiar knowledge of the London underworld. He always gave the impression that he did not take life very seriously, and rarely wore uniform if he could avoid it. The chief says you have to come in with us on this Blakely case, Mac began in dubious tones. He had heard that Hunter was brilliant but erratic. Well, I'd be glad to, Mac. I've always wanted to study your methods, Hunter assured him fervently. Fortunately, Mac had very little sense of humour, and did not detect the merest twinkle that flitted over Hunter's smooth features. It's a most peculiar case, continued Mac disregarding the flattery. And you'll have to be patient, I warn you. I've got Marshall, Rigby, and Nelson checking up every clue so far. Perhaps you'll give me the history of the case, Mac, put in Hunter. Reed's face hardened a trifle. He resented young Hunter addressing him with this familiarity. These college cubs were no sooner inside the yard than they were running the show, he reflected. However, Mac selected a small batch of cards from a file on his desk and motioned Hunter to a chair. Early in January, Mitchell and Bell published a novel called The Front Page Men. Jolly good yarn, too, broke in Hunter. You've read it, of course. I have no time for reading detective novels. Nelson and Rigby went through it and made a report. Oh, Hunter subsided. I see. As you're a literary sort of fella, maybe you already know that the book sold very well indeed, both here and in America, continued Reed, with a hint of sarcasm in his voice. Eighty thousand copies to date. It was in the paper this morning, Hunter informed him cheerfully. That's beside the point at the moment, said Mac, who did not relish these constant interruptions. The thing that interests us is a raid at the Margate Central Bank, and the murder of the head cashier, a young fellow called Sidney Debenham. Yes, nasty business that, agreed Hunter. Seems to have been hushed up lately. Weren't you looking after the case? I am still looking after it, retorted Mac in no uncertain manner. But I don't propose to broadcast it in the BBC news bulletins. Sorry, murmured Hunter. By the side of Debenham's body, continued Mac, we found this card. He handed over a piece of white cardboard, a little smaller than an ordinary playing card, and Hunter regarded it with a puzzled frown. The front page men. So this was the card, eh? I read about it, of course. You investigated the writing? Reed nodded indifferently. What did this youngster take him for? But the youngster seemed to be ignoring him and thinking of other things. Of course, this business would boost the sales of the novel, concluded Hunter at length. Are ye interested in the novel or the case? demanded Mac acidly. Surely they have a bearing on each other. If you'll let me finish, went on Mac impatiently. Well, about a fortnight after the Margate affair, there was a smash and grab in Bond Street. Lorraine's, the big jewellers. Inside the window of the jewellers we found another card. We passed it over, and Hunter put the two cards together. Exactly the same was his verdict. Hm, grunted Mac, 
who had examined the card under a microscope and submitted it to the handwriting and fingerprint experts with no better success. What about the author of this novel? asked Hunter, passing the cards back. Wasn't it written by a woman? It was published under the name of Andrea Fortune. Can't say I've heard of her before. Was it a first novel? Apparently. Then who is this Andrea Fortune? That, replied Mac, is one of the many things the dear Chief Commissioner expects you to find out. What about the publishers? Reed shook his head. They say the manuscript came from a back-alley agency in Fleet Street. We've been on to the agency, but they tell more or less the same story as the publishers. The novel was sent to them with instructions that all royalties should be handed over to the General Hospital in Gerard Street. Any use by seeing the publishers again? I don't want to discourage you, answered Mac, but I saw young Gerald Mitchell, he's the boss, only this morning. He swore he'd ever set eyes on Andrea Fortune. I think he's telling the truth. In fact, he seems pretty scared about the whole business. Hunter took a cigarette from his case, caught Mac's quizzical stare, thought better of the matter, and replaced it. He shut the case with a snap. You seem to have covered the ground pretty thoroughly, he commented. Aye, that's what I'm here for, said Mac in even tones, taking up a new card from his desk. Now, he announced solemnly, we come to the Blakely affair. Hunter smiled. The papers have certainly been full of the Blakely affair, he said. Mac frowned. I cannot understand how it leaked out he murmured irritably. The chief has even had the home office on the phone five times. Well, the front-page men have certainly made the front page this time. Is the chief doing anything about it? Now, hasn't he put you on the case? demanded Reed, unable to conceal the sarcasm in his voice. Apart from that, he seems to be laboring under the impression that this business might have some connection with the Granville kidnapping. But surely that was ages before we'd heard of the front-page men. We may not have heard of them, but they could have been there just the same, said Mac, who believed in covering all contingencies. It was a sad affair about Lester Granville. Apparently the child was the only thing he had left of the world after his wife died. Granville completely went to pieces over that business, said Mac. Gave up the stage and everything. The chief was upset, too. But that's no reason for jumping to conclusions that it's anything to do with the Blakely affair. I wonder, murmured Hunter, thoughtfully wrinkling his forehead. Now look here, began Mac peevishly. Hunter laughed. All right, Mac, let's have the rest of the Blakely story. I expect you've read all there is to tell. Last Friday, Sir Norman Blakely's only son disappeared under rather mysterious circumstances, and... By the way, put in Hunter, who exactly is Sir Norman Blakely? Before Reed could reply, there was a sharp knock at the door, and a burly sergeant entered. Sorry to trouble you, sir, but there's a man outside causing a lot of bother. Says he wants to see the chief, but he refuses to fill up the form. Chief Inspector Reed's sandy eyebrows went up in disapproval. There were too many people walking in and out of Scotland Yard these days, and it was time they put a stop to it. 
but before he could give instructions, the unruly visitor was standing behind the sergeant. He was a man of about fifty, obviously in a highly nervous condition, correctly dressed in the customary city uniform of a morning coat, striped trousers and cream gloves. His tie was a shade crooked, his hair somewhat ruffled, and one button of his waistcoat was unfastened. "'When am I to be allowed to see the Chief Commissioner?' he began in high-pitched, petulant tones, and Inspector Reed, who had risen to administer a stern reproof as only he knew how, straightened up smartly. "'At once, Sir Norman,' he answered politely. Chapter 2 Mr. Andrew Brightman Once inside the unpretentious office that has been described as the nerve centre of Scotland Yard, Sir Norman's overbearing manner fell from him, and he began to tremble in patent distress. Sir Graham Forbes looked up from his desk and at once appreciated the situation. He took his visitor's arm and led him to a comfortable chair, then went across to a cupboard and poured out a glass of whisky. Drink this first, he ordered, and made a pretense of carrying on with some work while Sir Norman gulped down the mellow liquid. Now, said Sir Graham, carefully blotting his signature to a letter, any news? Yes, answered Blakely, in a voice that had sunk almost to a whisper. I heard this morning. Tell me exactly what happened. The manner in which he fidgeted with his paper knife betrayed that Sir Graham had caught some of his visitors' nervousness. Blakely set down his glass. His hand still shook appreciably, but he appeared to make an effort. At about a quarter past ten, the telephone rang. A girl's voice said, We want nine thousand pounds. We want it in twenties. The notes must not be numbered consecutively. Put the money in a brown leather suitcase and leave it in the telephone booth at the corner of Eastwood Avenue, Mayfair. The money must be there by four o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Is that all? asked Forbes, who had been making rapid notes on the scribbling pad. Not quite. After that, she said, Don't worry, the child is safe. Then she rang off. The visitor leaned forward in great agitation. Sir Graham, do you think he is safe? Because if anything's happened to him, I... The chief commissioner leaned back in his chair. You can rest assured, Sir Norman, that we shall do everything in our power, but please remember that this is a far more serious business than a mere case of kidnapping. There's a lot more at stake than just getting back your boy for you. He's my only son, Sir Graham, the only son I'm likely to have, said Blakely quietly. Believe me, I sympathize replied Forbes. I'm merely trying to impress upon you the fact that we are doing our utmost to track down the organization that's responsible. Then you really think it's a big organization? Sir Graham shrugged non-committally. I suspect, but I'm not certain. He went across to the cupboard. Another whiskey? No, thanks. Sir Graham poured himself one. Your men were at the house yesterday, pursued Sir Norman. Did they discover anything? The chief commissioner consulted a sheaf of papers. Inspector Nelson inclines to the opinion that the boy was snatched out of his bed at four in the morning. All the same, 
It's difficult to see how they got him out of the house. It is indeed. I have the room next door, and I'm a very light sleeper. Who was the first to discover that the boy was missing? I did. I went into his room about half past seven. The little chap is usually awake by then and pretty frisky with himself. And on this particular morning, the room was very untidy, bedclothes all over the place. Was it shortly after that you received the message warning you not to communicate with the police? Sir Norman nodded. By this time he had recovered some of his old assurance, probably due to the influence of Sir Graham's old Scotch whisky. But he was still considerably agitated, and his face twitched with emotion as he answered Sir Graham's questions. The Chief Commissioner was lost in thought for a while. Once he made a move to the telephone, then changed his mind, and decided to continue with the questioning. He picked up a typewritten list and looked across at Sir Norman. You gave Inspector Nelson full details of all the visitors to your home during the week. Now, this list looks surprisingly short to me. Are you quite sure there's no one you've overlooked? Absolutely certain, said Blakely, with a trace of his city aggressiveness. On Tuesday, for instance, pursued Sir Graham. Apart from the usual tradespeople, a Mr. Andrew Brightman called, and also a Mr. J.P. Goldie. For a moment, Blakely was nonplussed. Goldie? I don't remember anything about a Mr. Goldie. I understand that he came to tune the piano. Oh, yes, of course, the piano tuner. I never knew his name. Sir Graham was toying with his paper knife again. Is Mr. Andrew Brightman a friend of yours? he asked at length. Hardly a friend. I've known him about two years. We met at a city banquet and I gave him a lift back to Hampstead. After that we became quite friendly. We're both interested in old China, but we don't see a great deal of each other. Then why did he come round on that particular evening? He'd brought a piece of China he'd had repaired for me by a relative of his. Suddenly, in a fit of desperation, I poured out the whole story to him. As you can imagine, I was very cut up, and to console me, I suppose, he started to tell me about his daughter. His daughter? What about her? Sir Norman Blakely hesitated. She was kidnapped, too, by the front-page men. The paper knife fell with a clatter. For a moment the Chief Commissioner seemed too astounded to speak. Then he recovered abruptly. Are you sure of this? What happened to the girl? He got her back. The devil he did. How? He never informed us. No. It cost him eight thousand pounds, Sir Graham. The Chief Commissioner was obviously staggered. Eight thousand? How soon can I get hold of Andrew Brightman? he asked. He's outside in a taxi, said Sir Norman. I thought you would probably want to interview him, so I persuaded him to come along. I'm very grateful to you, acknowledged Sir Graham, pressing a button at the side of his desk. As if by magic, the door opened and Sergeant Leopold stood waiting for instructions. There's a gentleman in a taxi outside, a Mr. Brightman. Ask him to come up, Sergeant. When the door had closed, Sir Graham turned to Blakely again. I suppose you've seen the papers today. Sir Norman started in alarm. You don't mean it's got into the papers. I'm afraid so.
The colour rushed to Sir Norman's face. They warned me not to get in touch with the police, he almost shouted, and you promised to keep it out of the papers. Sir Graham clasped his shoulder. Don't alarm yourself, Sir Norman. They must have seen the papers before you and I had the message this morning. Now, tomorrow morning, take a taxi and go straight to your bank. Arrange for the £9,000 exactly as the girl instructed you. Tomorrow afternoon, take the money yourself and deposit it in the telephone box at the corner of Eastwood Avenue. As soon as you've deposited the money, leave the telephone booth and return home. Is that clear? Then you want me to give in to these swine, stammered Sir Norman. I want you to do as I tell you and leave the rest to us, answered the Chief Commissioner. Now I'd like to see Mr. Brightman alone, if you don't mind waiting. Yes, yes, I wait, agreed Sir Norman, collecting his hat and umbrella. Sir Graham ushered out his guest and returned to telephone for a map of the Mayfair district. He had just replaced the receiver when Mr. Andrew Brightman was shown in. The Chief Commissioner surveyed him shrewdly. Please sit down, Mr. Brightman, he murmured politely, and his visitor complied. He was a fairly stout individual in the middle fifties, a man who was obviously the life and soul of the party. He reeked with self-assurance, and was never at a loss for a reply of some sort, whatever the situation might be. His hail-fellow-well-met attitude was calculated to disarm most people, and doubtless accounted in no small measure for his prosperous appearance. He did not seem in the least overawed by his surroundings, and faced Sir Graham with a pleasant smile, as if they were about to discuss a business proposition. "'I've just been having a chat with Sir Norman Blakely,' began the Commissioner. "'He tells me that your daughter disappeared under rather mysterious circumstances, and that you paid a certain sum of money for her return.' "'That is so,' assented Brightman. For a second or two Sir Graham appeared to be puzzled. "'When did this happen?' he asked. "'March of this year, the eighth, to be precise. "'It's a date I shan't easily forget,' Brightman assured him. "'Why didn't you consult us about this matter, Mr. Brightman?' "'suddenly demanded the Commissioner with a hint of anger in his tone. "'But his visitor was not in the least perturbed. "'To be perfectly honest, Sir Graham, because I didn't wish to take any risk.' "'Forbes' anger was obviously rising.' It seems to me that you took a very grave risk. That, murmured Andrew Brightman politely, like so many other things, Sir Graham, is a matter of opinion. Once again the Chief Commissioner was at a loss. Finally he asked, Is your daughter in town at the moment? No, she's at school in France, small place near Saint Raphael. She's been there six months. I thought it was advisable to send her away after that business. Sir Graham gave a nod of understanding. Now, Mr. Brightman, when you handed over this money, did you retain the numbers of the notes? Brightman shook his head. I was told to deliver it in twenties. I remember that rather surprised me. However, I cashed a cheque at Floyd's in Manchester Street, my private bankers. I dare say they could tell you the numbers. I understand it's usual to keep a record. Sir Graham waved aside the suggestion. How did you receive your instructions about delivering the money? he asked. By telephone. It was the Monday after Margaret had disappeared. I didn't feel like going to the office in case something should turn up, and I was wandering round the library when the phone rang. 
Sir Graham seemed incredulous. Do you mean to tell me you waited two days without making any move? Mr. Andrew Brightman was still very sure of himself, however. I had a reason for waiting, he answered quietly. Then I should very much like to hear that reason. When Margaret vanished, continued Brightman, naturally my first thought was to get in touch with the police. I was actually on the point of doing so when my butler brought me a small card. There was nothing unusual about it, except that it had no address and had obviously been delivered by hand. Morgan, my butler, thinks it must have been left in the letterbox while we were all rushing over the house looking for Margaret. Uh, this must be true, because he had already cleared the first delivery of letters out of the box and put them on my desk. Hmm, very interesting. Now tell me, who was the first person to discover your daughter was missing? The maid. She used to take Margaret a glass of milk at about eight o'clock every morning. On this particular day, she was surprised to find Margaret was not in her room, and that apparently the bed had not been slept in. Naturally, the poor girl was quite bewildered, and uh, you were about to phone the police when Morgan brought you this card. Brightman nodded. Yes, we'd searched the house from cellar to attic, and I was getting more and more alarmed. By the way, I thought perhaps you might be interested to see the card. He handed over a slip of pasteboard, which Sir Graham examined carefully through a small but powerful magnifying glass. It bore the simple message, Don't call the police. Wait forty-eight hours. The child is safe. The front page men. Thank you, said Sir Graham at length. I should like to keep this for the time being, if I may. Of course, sir, agreed Brighton, who now appeared to be more at ease than ever, and spoke in the slightly pompous manner of the chairman of a company who was about to disclose the payment of an extraordinary dividend. You can imagine, he went on, what a state I was in when I received that note. I didn't know what to do. Suddenly I made up my mind to wait. Brightman paused. I needn't tell you what that weekend was like, Sir Graham. Every minute seemed like an eternity. I wouldn't go through it again, not for a million. Suddenly the recollection of this experience seemed to upset his urbanity for the first time. He swallowed hard, shifted uncomfortably in his chair, and ran a finger round the edge of his collar before continuing. Both Morgan and the maid wanted me to send for the police. In fact, Morgan threatened to go over my head and get in touch with Scotland Yard himself. The poor devil is devoted to Margaret, and he was completely unnerved. Then, at about half-past nine, another note was delivered. He handed over the second card, which read, Be near the telephone tomorrow morning. The child is safe. The front page men. Forbes examined it carefully, but it appeared to offer no clue. How long have Morgan and the maid been in your employment? Oh, quite a while, long before my wife and I parted. Morgan was with my father for some years. They both worshipped Margaret, if that's what you're thinking. Graham. What time did you receive the phone call? At about 10.15. Naturally, I answered the phone myself. A woman was at the other end. She sounded young and quite pleasant. We want £8,000, she said. We want it in twenties. The notes must not be numbered consecutively. Put the money in a brown leather suitcase and deposit it in the cloakroom of the Regal Palace Hotel. 
The case must be there by 12.30 tomorrow morning. Sir Graham snatched up his pencil and made several notes. Then he nodded to his visitor to continue. The next morning I turned up at the Regal Palace Hotel, complete with suitcase and money. At the cloakroom they gave me a ticket for the suitcase, which rather worried me. I couldn't quite see how anybody could get the suitcase out without the ticket. And so far, at any rate, I'd received no instructions about sending the ticket on anywhere. I was still thinking about this when I arrived home. He paused, took out a handkerchief, and rather nervously wiped his lips. I opened the front door, and the first thing I heard was Margaret's voice. She had arrived just after I left the house with the money. If this mystified Sir Graham, he did not betray the fact. He inquired if the child was in good health. Perfectly normal, except for one thing, replied Brightman. She couldn't remember anything that had happened. I talked to her for hours, trying to bring back her memory, but it was no use at all. That weekend had just been erased from her consciousness. You made no attempt to retrieve the money? I did consider that point, I admit. I even got as far as starting out for the hotel, but at the last moment I turned back. It struck me that even if I did get the money, something terrible might happen to Margaret again. Sir Graham reread his notes with a worried frown, before asking Brightman if there had been any callers at the house on the day his daughter disappeared. Brightman thought for a while, appeared to be about to reply in the negative, then recalled that the only visitor was a piano tuner. Sir Graham looked up quickly. A piano tuner? Yes. Do you know his name? I'm afraid I don't, confessed Brightman. Morgan did mention it, but... Was it Goldie? J.P. Goldie, broke in the Chief Commissioner, unable to repress a hint of eagerness in his voice. Why, yes, I believe it was, replied Brightman in surprise. But he's quite a harmless old customer. He couldn't have had anything to do with this awful business. Sir Graham smiled. That, like so many other things, Mr. Brightman, is a matter of opinion. A rather awkward pause was suddenly interrupted by Sergeant Leopold, who entered with a large map which he placed on the Chief Commissioner's desk. I think you've told me pretty well everything, said the Commissioner, and if you'll excuse me. Why, certainly, Sir Graham, and if I can be of any further service, don't hesitate to telephone. Thank you. Sergeant Leopold will show you the way out. As soon as Brightman had gone, Sir Graham rang for Inspector Nelson, a dark, alert young man, and ordered him to telephone Floyd's Bank in Manchester Street and find out whether their customer, Andrew Brightman, had cashed a cheque for £8,000 on March the 8th. And tell Reed and Hunter I want them, he added as an afterthought. Well, Mac, did you check up on Brightman? Forbes demanded, as a stocky figure appeared in the doorway, closely followed by Hunter. I did that. He's a stockbroker, lives in Hampstead, divorced his wife in 1928, and has the custody of the child. Hmm, that seems to tally, agreed Sir Graham. What else? Brightman and the piano tuner were the only people who visited Sir Norman Blakely on the day the boy disappeared. What about the piano tuner? I checked up on him, sir. He used to be with Clapshaw and Thompson's in Regent Street. 
started on his own about six years ago. Lives at North Stream Cottages, Stretton. That sounds fair enough. Now I have some news for you, Mac. Sir Norman's had a message. They want £9,000 by four o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Even Mac's inscrutable poker face reacted to this information, and Hunter made no secret of his astonishment. There was a moment's silence. Nine thousand, repeated Reed. Did he get any instructions? Yes, it must be left in twenties, inside the telephone box at the corner of Eastwood Avenue, Mayfair. Eastwood Avenue? They've certainly got a nerve, exclaimed Hunter. Sir Graham pulled the map towards them, and they all bent over it. They traced the position of the telephone booth without much difficulty, and the commissioner began to formulate a plan. Max, I shall want six of your men here at the corner of Lenton Park Road, he said. That will give you a clear view in both directions. We'll be there, sir. And, Hunter, you'll be on the other corner, opposite the booth. I want everybody there by three o'clock at the latest. The two assistants acknowledged their instructions and made certain of their positions on the plan. Then another idea occurred to the chief. This block of flats here has a perfect view of the telephone booth, if this map's accurate. That's so, sir, agreed Hunter, who knew the district quite well. See if you can arrange for me to be in the first floor flat. Ring the janitor, Hunter and find out whom it belongs to. The address is Eastwood Mansions. Hunter went out to make the call, passing Nelson in the doorway. He had returned to inform Sir Graham that Floyd's bank had turned up Brightman's cheque, which corresponded in every detail with the Commissioner's description. Well, Mac, it looks as if things are moving, mused Sir Graham. They always are moving, sir, in this business, was the non-committal reply. By the way, here are two more cards for your collection. They were sent to Brightman. Before Mac could ask any further questions, Hunter returned. That flat, sir, he began. Chief looked up. Whose is it? The address is 49 Eastwood Mansion, sir. There was a rather peculiar smile on Hunter's mobile features. The flat belongs to Mr. and Mrs. Paul Temple, sir, he said. Chapter 3 Sir Norman Blakely The morning after Sir Norman Blakely visited Scotland Yard, a taxi drew up at the main entrance of the Northern Bank and the Haymarket, and Sir Norman emerged, carrying a small leather suitcase. He was nervous and apprehensive, yet to the casual observer there seemed to be almost an attitude of resigned indifference in his manner. His eyes were weary, and the skin on his face was flabby and greyish-yellow. A doctor would have taken one look at him and immediately reached for his hypodermic needle. "'Wait for me, I shan't be long,' Sir Norman ordered, as he stepped out rather heavily, and the driver touched his cap respectfully in acknowledgment. It was a fine morning, the sort of morning on which people preferred to walk rather than take a taxi, and he was lucky to have picked up this fare so early in the day. With a bit of luck... This distinguished-looking passenger might demand to be taken to one of the outer suburbs, like Richmond. It would be a nice run through the park this morning. All the same, I'd soon it was Croydon, mumbled the driver to himself. It'd be nice to get home for a bit of dinner. 
It was surprising how very few people wanted to go to Croydon these days. At night he invariably had to make the journey home without a fare. He was cogitating upon this point when another well-dressed man came on the scene, opened the taxi door without warning, and declared briskly, uh, Take me to Euston, quick as you can. I have a train in twenty minutes. Sorry, Governor, the cab's taken. I've got a fare in the back here. Uh, there's a rank just up the road. The stranger immediately took a pound note from his pocket and unceremoniously pushed it under the driver's nose. I must get the 11.15 from Euston, he snapped, and if you do it, there's a pound for you. With a puzzled frown, the driver looked inquiringly into the bank entrance. There was no sign of his former passenger. Then he looked at his meter, which registered three and sixpence. He made a rapid calculation on the question of the maximum fare to Euston, and decided he would clear at least ten shillings on the deal. Get in, sir, he invited, slammed the door after his new fare, clicked the flag down as he sprang into his seat, and briskly started the engine.